This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Do you get along with your neighbors? If you do, you're pretty fortunate. Whether it's having people to call in an emergency or someone to borrow a cup of sugar from, good neighbors are worth their weight in gold. Or perhaps you keep your neighbors at arm's length because that's the way you like it. You keep it friendly, but not close friends. You don't get all up in their business and they don't get up in yours. Everyone likes to think they're friendly and reasonable enough when it comes to maintaining a peaceful equilibrium with others living around them. But things will happen from time to time which upset the neighborhood apple cart. Perhaps someone plays music too loudly at all-night parties, or another lets their front lawn become so overgrown it becomes an eyesore. Maybe one neighbor loves holiday decorations and the other hates them. These small tensions are often minor on their own, but compounded they escalate to the point of frustration. When neighborhood disputes erupt, there are traditional ways of dealing with such unpleasantness. Maybe you have a homeowners association or landlord that can mediate. Some people contact the city or law enforcement. Others leave passive-aggressive notes, often unsigned, in mailboxes. But well before modern building and civic codes, Some people had a more imaginative and extreme way of letting their neighbors know exactly how they felt. They built an entire house designed to annoy them. This extreme approach to pissing off your neighbors was more common than you might think. These spite houses, as they're known, were designed to block views, cut off access, or just be really ugly. It's the ultimate architectural representation of giving the middle finger. In Boston's North End, near the famous Old North Church and across the street from Copps Hill Burying Ground, sits a property known as the Skinny House. Describing the property as cozy would be generous. The four-story home, located at 44 Hall Street, is 10 feet wide at its largest and 9 feet at its narrowest. Inside the house, the narrowest point is just over 6 feet across an adult can touch both walls at the same time. Old Boston is known for its smaller lots, but Skinny House has been officially decreed the narrowest house in the city. Local legend has it that this tiny house was built as a spite house. The land on which the home sits was inherited by two brothers during the 19th century, around the time of the American Civil War. When their father died, one of the brothers decided to build himself a large home on the land while his sibling was away serving in the military. When the absent brother returned to Boston, he found he'd been left a tiny sliver of land. The brother with a larger home thought he'd been crafty, building himself a beautiful large home in the heart of Boston and leaving his brother too tiny a plot to do anything with, essentially conning his brother out of his share of the land. But the joke was ultimately on him. The short-changed brother decided to fight fire with fire. 
he constructed his own home on the tiny plot. When completed, the structure blocked any view of the harbor and the city. It also restricted the amount of sunshine which his brother had previously enjoyed. The term Spite House was born. This home on Hull Street is 1,100 square feet, but here's the thing, it's only 10 feet wide. It's a two-bedroom, one-bathroom. It has a private garden and roof deck. What makes this a great Boston story yeah. is that this house is all about a grudge and revenge. Right, and that is the most Boston thing of all. Yeah. Just. That's like, I'm just, I gotta stick it to you. <laughs> Regardless of this, I just have to give it to you. The house has become one of Boston's most popular architectural tourist attractions. Don't try to go inside, though. To this day, it remains a private residence. There's no front door on Hull Street to enter through anyway. The entry point to the two-bedroom, one-bathroom home is down an alley at the side of the house. A steep stairway leads directly to the floor where the kitchen and dining room are located. The house has very few doors because each floor is its own room, other than the second floor where the living room and bathroom are situated. In an interview, a previous owner said, We had a party of ten one New Year's Eve, and when one person has to go to the bathroom, everyone has to move. It, it's such a great house. The location was amazing, but, but it did have its challenges. It, you can't just go to Pottery Barn and buy a couch. Shopping for furniture is, is a real test of measuring skills. There's been a lot of times where we've been in the kitchen and there's a knock on the door and somebody says, you know, I studied architecture. Is it, can I come in and look at this house? I just got to see what it looks like inside. While living in such a unique space isn't for everyone, the single-family dwelling does boast something rarely found in the city's north end, a sizable backyard. But if you think the home's small size would be reflected in the property value, you can think again. What the skinny house lacks in width it more than compensates for in the real estate market. In mid-2021, the famous property sold for an incredible $1.2 million. That is just over $1,000 per square foot. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Around the same time the Boston Skinny House was turning heads, another property development dispute was in full swing in New York City. In this instance, however, the stakes were somewhat higher. This was not a case of family friction. Money and principle were on the line. Throughout the 1870s and 80s, development of the Upper East Side of Manhattan was well underway. The island was being divided into the grid system we know today. To create the major avenues that define New York City, large parcels of land were occasionally split up, resulting in some tiny lots. In 1882, one very small lot on the northwest corner of 82nd Street and Lexington Avenue would fuel one of the most high-profile property development disputes in the city's history. The extremely wealthy but eccentric businessman, Joseph Richardson, 
had made his fortune in the railroad industry. But for someone who was said to be worth well over half a billion dollars by today's standards, he was reclusive and shunned any sort of limelight, publicity, or New York society life. He was rumored to have said that he'd rather throw away $10,000 than see his name in the newspapers. In the early 1880s, Richardson acquired a sliver of land when he married his second wife, Emma. And when I say sliver, I'm not exaggerating. Located at 1218 Lexington Avenue, this property measured just over 100 feet by 5 feet. It was one of those random pieces of property created by the new city infrastructure, and was so narrow it didn't appear to be good for much. Which is exactly what Hyman Sarner and Patrick McQuaid thought when they offered to buy it. Sarner and McQuaid owned multiple lots surrounding Richardson's land. The men planned to build a four-story apartment building on the northwest corner of Lex and 82nd and offered Richardson $1,000 for the tiny piece of land that stood between their planned building and Lexington Avenue. Sarner and McQuaid saw a sliver of land that held no value to Richardson. Richardson, an astute businessman, saw the final missing piece to the men's real estate puzzle. So, he played hardball. He knew the developers needed his plot more than he did. Richardson made a counteroffer of $5,000. Sarner and McQuaid declined what they felt was a ridiculous price and forged ahead with their construction project as planned. However, realizing the tiny plot was critical to their building, Sarner went back to Richardson shortly after ground was broken and accepted the counteroffer of $5,000. But Richardson, later described by the New York Times as eccentric, strong-willed, and thrifty, rejected the offer. He told Sarner he never gave a man more than one opportunity to buy anything from him. Sarner and McQuaid moved ahead with their apartments that had a lovely easterly view looking out over Manhattan, assuming Richardson couldn't do anything with five feet of property. However, out of, you guessed it, spite, Richardson decided to get revenge on the men who dared to lowball him. He broke ground on his plot one month later. His wife and daughter did their best to convince him of the folly of his idea, but he was undeterred. He had a clear creative vision to build a row of houses and told his family, not only will I build the houses, but I will live in one of them. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Richardson's houses were completed in November, 1882. Like the apartment building next door, his project was also four stories tall. From the street, it appeared to be a grand 100-foot house, 
However, if you went around the corner, you would see that it was only five feet wide. It was basically a facade, but it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Richardson Spite House blocked out the light from all the windows on the east side of Sarner and McQuaid's apartment building. Who cared if the furniture had to be custom-made, that the dining room table was only 18 inches wide, and it didn't have running water? Richardson had clearly made his spiteful point to Sarner and McQuaid over their insulting offer. The Spite House actually contained two residences, each 50 feet long. The floors were connected by a spiral staircase, which led to a hallway on each floor that was 14 feet long and just under 4 feet wide. This led to the one room on each floor, which was approximately 18 feet long and just over 9 feet wide. Richardson was able to use bay windows, which were permitted on corner lot houses, to extend the size of the rooms. There were five rooms in total, and they were described as fair-sized and relatively comfortable. Richardson was innovative with his design, using folding beds and other custom-made furniture to make the small rooms feel spacious. He and his wife moved in, and a year later, Emma Richardson told a reporter that the house provided as much space as she and her husband needed. She said the only downside was that she didn't have a backyard, but that one couldn't have everything on a five-foot lot. Fifteen years after moving into his new house, Richardson passed away in June 1897. Ever the planner, years before his death, he had his own coffin made from lumber from one of his properties. Unfortunately, by the time Richardson died, his coffin was too small for his body to fit. In order to follow his request to the letter, the original coffin was taken apart, and the panels were attached to a new, larger one. But now, the problem was getting the casket out of the narrow house. It had to be unceremoniously hauled down the spiral staircase and out into the street, where hundreds of spectators had gathered. Richardson, a notoriously private man, was now the center of attention thanks to his vengeful spite house feud. The New York Tribune's sarcastic headline read, His grave to be as wide as his home. Five years after Richardson's death, in 1902, the home was sold. It seems, other than Richardson, not many people wanted to live in a five-foot-wide house. By 1905, the Spite House was vacant and a shadow of its former self. The house was finally sold to a property development company in 1915, along with Sarner and McQuaid's former building. Both were demolished. Despite Richardson's excessive scheme to keep his property separate from the larger one next door, a large apartment building was built on the combined lot. Today, no reminders of Richardson's feud with Sarner and McQuaid remain. While some spite houses were built to frustrate neighbors, others are spiteful because they refused to change as the neighborhood changed around them. In China, nail house is the term used to describe residents who disobey orders to vacate their homes. Like nails that are stuck in wood and can't be hammered in all the way, these houses stick out in their new landscape. 
or highway, depending on where you are. In 2012, one couple absolutely refused to leave their five-story home in the city of Wenling when a new highway was planned to be built right through it. 67-year-old duck farmer Luo Baozhen and his wife had been offered compensation by the Chinese government. But the couple were unimpressed by the government's offer. They felt it was not enough to cover the cost of relocation and rebuilding. So they decided to stay put. The government, however, didn't seem to care, or maybe hoped the couple would change their minds as the construction equipment moved towards their home. The project continued, full steam ahead. One by one, the couple's neighbors moved away, and their homes were demolished. But the Bao Jens held firm. So the government went around them, literally laying asphalt on all sides of the house, so that it stood all by itself in the middle of the new highway. News of the couple's now very inconvenient address went viral, and media outlets from all over the world flocked to the house. You may have seen that sole house in the middle of a highway in China that made news recently. Its owner had been holding out for higher compensation, having just finished building his five-story home for a cool $118,000. The property had been earmarked for demolition in 2008, but while all the other residents moved out, one owner refused to budge. Pictures of his house spread online, and the story became a symbol of individual resistance against large-scale construction projects. A month after rejecting the government's first offer, the couple received an increased offer equivalent to around $41,000. The price was right, and the offer was accepted. The couple vacated the property, and contractors wasted no time in bulldozing the home. But the Bojens are not the only Chinese citizens to have made headlines over their refusal to relocate. The country has been investing heavily in infrastructure projects, changing the landscape at a rapid pace. And there are some who refuse to change with it. There are countless examples of these nail houses, where residents are often forced out when access to the building is restricted or utilities are cut off. In 2020, however, one elderly woman refused to leave her home in Guangdong province, making it a local tourist attraction. In 2010, a two-lane highway was under development, and 47 families and seven businesses were asked to move. Ms. Liang was the only one to say no. She adamantly refused to leave her 430-square-foot home, rejecting an offer of two apartments and the equivalent of $186,000. She did not feel this was sufficient compensation. Plus, one of the apartments was next to a morgue, not a great location, in her opinion. Her counteroffer was four apartments and the equivalent of $287,000. Ten years later, she was still holding out. Eventually, authorities gave permission to simply build the road around her. Today, Ms. Liang's house is contained in a pit, under a bridge, in the middle of the highway but she's not too upset about the way things worked out. In an interview, 
she said, You think this environment is poor, but I feel it's quiet, liberating, pleasant, and comfortable. In 1814, a homeowner faced with a municipal works project in Frederick, Maryland, managed to outsmart the authorities. Dr. John Tyler owned a large plot of land that he learned the city planned to bisect with a new road. He was not happy about this, so he did some research. He quickly discovered a local law that said the road could not be built if there was a large building in its path, or a building under construction. Dr. Tyler immediately hired a contractor and started work that very night. When the road crew arrived the next morning, there was a large hole where the road was supposed to go, and the foundation for the new home was underway. The plan to build the road was stopped, and with his new house, Dr. Tyler was able to express to the town government exactly how he felt about their road. If you can't afford to build a house to send a message to your neighbors, you might want to consider a less costly redecoration. One unique story out of the Midwest shows that a strategic paint job can send a powerful tongue-in-cheek message. You could say it's a somewhat benevolent twist on spite. The Westboro Baptist Church has gained international notoriety as a very public and aggressive anti-LGTBQ hate group, using the guise of religion to spread bigotry and intolerance. We've all probably heard a thing or two about that church whose members protest outside the funerals of American soldiers spewing anti-gay bile. Why did they take a faith whose core message is love and twist it into something so seemingly hateful? Their headquarters in Topeka, Kansas is hard to miss, with a large banner and more discriminatory hate messages on billboards all visible from the street. Many were surprised when in 2013, charity worker Aaron Jackson purchased the property directly across the street from the church. But Jackson had the vision to use this house to send a message of love and inclusion to his neighbors. He turned his new home into a protest of prejudice boldly painting it the rainbow colors of the pride flag and naming it Equality House. I saw the house across the street had a for sale sign on it, and it hit me right away. I'm going to buy that home, and I'm going to paint it the color of the pride flag. The home is the headquarters for the nonprofit organization, Planting Peace. According to the organization's website, Equality House is a symbol of compassion, positive change, and LGBTQ advocacy, standing as a visual reminder of a commitment to global equality. And a visual reminder, it is. The folks at Westboro Baptist Church cannot look out their windows without seeing Jackson's rainbows. Planting Peace continues to send their message to their neighbor, hosting drag shows and gay weddings in the front yard. Jackson recently announced his plans to turn Equality House into a marriage equality museum. And in 2016, Planting Peace purchased the home next door to Equality House. The house was painted a vibrant blue, pink, and white, the colors of the transgender pride flag. If you ever want to visit Equality House in Topeka, Kansas, you're in luck. Everyone is welcome.
Sometimes it's not about what you build, but about where you build it. This was the case in 1922, when a recently separated man had to build his ex-wife a new home as part of their divorce settlement. The terms stated the house had to be a perfect replica of the lovely home they shared together in town. But the document did not stipulate where it had to be built. So the husband had her beautiful house built miles away from civilization. There were no neighbors, no running water, and during very high tides, the road to the house would flood and make it inaccessible. To this day, the Plum Island Pink House stands isolated and decaying in the middle of a salt marsh. No one knows if the ex-wife ever moved in. The next time your neighbors frustrate you, think big. Sure, you could have a rational adult conversation about forgetting to put away the garbage bins or picking up after their dog. Or you could construct a permanent representation of your feelings. Spite may not be an attractive emotion, but it can build a pretty house. Production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening and for your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.